Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Pratt Library this evening. I'm, I'm Judy Cooper, the coordinator of public programs, and this is a very special evening. We um, are so happy that Elaine F. chose the Pratt for the launch of her Painted Screens in Baltimore book, and because this is a, this is a great occasion for Elaine and for us and for the city of Baltimore. Um, on the table outside, as you came in, there are a lot of flyers and our calendar of events. Um, the, a lot of the flyers are for January and February programs, so you'll be getting that information here before anybody else. So we hope that you will stop and take a look at them. We have books for sale outside, and Elaine will be signing afterwards. Um, here to introduce Elaine this evening is Cliff Murphy. He's the director of Maryland Traditions and he's a folklorist at the Maryland State Arts Council. Cliff? Thank you, Judy. Hi, I'm Cliff Murphy. Nice to see everybody here. Um, it's been my uh, good fortune to get to work with Elaine over the last five and a half years, right? Since 2008, um, I've been working as a folklorist here in Maryland, and everything that I know that's accurate, I learned from Elaine. Um, and anything I do wrong is my fault. Um, but Elaine has been my mentor and has um, really been an incredible guide to uh, traditional arts and culture and folk life here in Maryland. And, um, and I just feel very fortunate to know her and to get to be a part of her story. Um, earlier today, I was talking to a friend of mine who had just gotten a book signed, not by Elaine, uh, and the inscription said, may you be blessed with the story of my life. Um, <laughs> which I thought was an amazing inscription. Um, and I don't think Elaine would ever write that, but I do feel blessed to be a part of the story of her life. So um, let me tell you a little bit about Elaine. Um, she was, I'm going to let the cat out of the bag, was born in West Hartford, Connecticut if you can believe it, and uh, but moved to Baltimore uh, when she was seven and uh, went to public school here in Baltimore and really, uh, I guess through that, just became of, of Baltimore. Um, by the mid-1970s, she was working in the area of folk life and published her first work on painted screens. Um, she worked at the Winterthur Museum, the Smithsonian Festival of American Folk Life, uh, where she developed a program on truckers uh, for the Smithsonian Folklife Festival, which I wish I could have gone to. Um, and that was the subject of her Cooperstown master's thesis. Um, she was awarded a prestigious Rockefeller Foundation fellowship to study her PhD uh, for her PhD at uh, University of Pennsylvania. Uh, and she received her PhD in folklore um, uh, and completing her dissertation on the topic of painted screens. So this has been a life's work. Um, and uh, upon graduation, she came back to Baltimore, and this is my favorite thing about her biography, persuaded Mayor uh, William Donald Schaefer that Baltimore needed a city folklorist. Um, so from 1985 to 1989, uh, she, pioneered, she did pioneering work as a city folklorist here in Baltimore, um, exploring traditions throughout the city, generating projects, events, and, ex and exhibits, um, and partnerships with the Greek community, the North Avenue Corridor, Lexington Market, 
A. Rabbers and, of course, her beloved work uh, with painted screens. She also made uh, the film The Screen Painters during this time. Who's seen that film here? All right, good. So you got a, you got some your people here, Elaine. In 1989, she moved with, uh, with Mayor Schaefer when he became governor uh, to state government, and she began the cultural conservation program of the Maryland Historical Trust and extended her work and engagement statewide. Um, her work during this period, what she's really best known for during this period, was uh, her work with the community of Smith Island, uh, where she helped generate the creation of an island museum uh, and uh, developed the film Land and Water, People and Time, uh, and created, uh, helped to create a crab-picking cooperative uh, that helped to save uh, that industry on the island. Her work with the state resulted in the publication of the seminal oral history guide, You Should Have Been Here Yesterday, a guide to cultural documentation in Maryland. Um, and really, if there's one defining thing about Elaine as a, as a colleague, as a, um, as a public folklorist, it's really that her work um, stresses, embodies everything that's good about partnership and collaboration. Um, you can see this. Uh, perhaps the most lasting um, legacy uh, of Elaine's in this respect in terms of fostering collaborations and partnerships um, has been in co-founding the Maryland Traditions Program, uh, the State Folklife Program. Um, this began as an alliance between the Maryland Historical Trust and the Folklife Program of the Maryland State Arts Council. Um, this was founded in 2000, 2000-ish, 2001. Um, and today consists of a network of regional partners and folklorists working collaboratively with regional communities to document, celebrate, and sustain living traditions. So thank you for that, Elaine. Um, in 2007, her ongoing work with oral history was recognized when she received the Forrest Pogue Award for Lifetime Achievement in Oral History from OMAR, the Oral History in the Mid-Atlantic Region. Um, in 2010, Elaine left the Maryland Historical Trust and set up shop at the Maryland State Arts Council uh, and launched an exciting and lasting uh, new partnership with Maryland Traditions and the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. That same year, Elaine was awarded the American Folklore Society's prestigious Benjamin Botkin Award. Uh, and in 2011, Elaine was recognized along with, the Mar with Maryland Traditions and the Maryland State Arts Council with the Preservation Service Award from the Maryland Historical Trust. So uh, clearly this is somebody of great accomplishments. And I know that many of us know Elaine through her work with painted screens, um, but really she's someone who's accomplished a great deal um, and has really built amazing programs with very strong bones. So um, I will let Elaine tell you all about painted screens, but I wanted to tell you a little bit about Elaine first. So please, if you would, Welcome her um, and her amazing new book, which is absolutely beautiful, um, The Painted Screens of Baltimore and Urban Folk Art Revealed, just out from University Press of Mississippi. Uh, please put your hands together for the great <laughs> Elena. I just realized I left my notes somewhere. I'm so busy. I'm so busy visiting. I probably didn't even bring them. I probably didn't even bring them. 
Well, that's, that's typical, isn't it? <laughs> anyway, thank you all for being here. I mean, there's a reason I'm here tonight, and there's a reason, and I'm sorry that Judy's not in the room, um, but I'm here because this is where my research started. So it's, it's my gift. Um, you know, Enoch Pratt gave me his incredible library um, so that I could, you know, trudge through the vertical files and find that nobody ever wrote anything about this esoteric subject um, known only or familiarly to Baltimoreans until now. Um, so that is why it is not, um, it is more than a choice, it is a duty um, to give back to this library, this incredible treasure um, that we all value. Um, so I just want to thank you all for being here and um, I, um, Thank you, Cliff. That was incredibly. I had. I just said, just tell a story or two. So I didn't expect my biography to um, emerge. And um, a person, by the way, who gets a lot of awards, has a lot of trivets at home. So you know, that is what that is what we get as awards these days. These lovely trays and things. So um, anyway, I actually noticed my. I'm, I'm using them for like olive oil and stuff like that. My husband puts them on the shelf and says, "This is an award." <laughs> okay, enough of that. Um, Boy, we are here today, tonight, um, because we have something in common. I suspect that everybody here cares very deeply about this city. And um, I guess I decided one day that um, I did too. But I have to say, when I came, when I came to Baltimore in se at 7 and when I left for college, um, I'm not sure I really knew um, that this was going to be the, the place that um, my life's work um, was going to unfold. And um, so I just want to tell you that I'm going to answer some questions and I'm going to tell you some stories and then I have a feeling that you all have a lot of questions. Um, am I right? Are there questions in the room? Um, so um, I really just want to start by saying you really need to own this book or to give this book as a gift because you are going to learn so much about your city and about how Baltimore fits into so much of a larger picture, um, um, how we are so much a part of the world, as we always have been. Um, I really encourage you um, to, I think it's the, one of the greatest, um, a, a great gift to anybody who loves this city and to yourself, so you're worth it. Um, so. I have to thank the University Press of Mississippi who knew that this was an important subject that people cared about. And in case you guys missed it, the New York Times named this book as a holiday gift buy on, on Friday. And I couldn't figure out why. And I finally, we, my husband had to find, my husband, a journalist, had to find out why. So he wrote the journalist in my name. And she said, I search for um, through antiques and art through for Amazon all the time. I'm constantly searching. She says, and I hit this book, and I just was overwhelmed by the subject, the beauty, the enthusiasm, the passion. And, you know, to, to have your book recognized um, is, Thank you know a gift and thank you all um, for being here and sharing it. The questions I get asked the most: How did you get interested in painted screens? I didn't grow up in East Baltimore. I grew up in the suburbs in Northwest Baltimore on Cross Country Boulevard. Somebody, <laughs> do I have a neighbor here? Um, and as I was going to graduate school in 1974 and packing my van and heading off to Cooperstown, New York, my mother said to me, you're going to be studying folk art. Folk art. Is that like the painted screens of Baltimore? 
And I looked at my mother, and then I said, got me. I had no idea what the painted screens of Baltimore were. We'd go into East Baltimore, but we'd go to Bellman's Deli, you know, to eat, or we would go to Atman's. But I didn't look. I didn't, I didn't have the, the eyes of a folklorist then. Um, and I didn't have the eyes I have now. So I was a hippie. And I went to Cooperstown. And my first job at Cooperstown as a curatorial assistant was to clean out the collections, was to deframe. Does everybody remember the deframing uh, fad of uh, taking, taking fine art, separating it from its frame, which is part of the piece uh, almost always? Um, and you know, take the frames, put the screens, put the um, art back. And as I'm going through the New York State Historical Association's collection, which is located at my graduate school in Cooperstown, I'm, I start pulling out their hardware. I'm saying, what are they doing storing their screens here? And I look. I just happen to look in the right way. Had I looked up at a window, I was in a basement, but I think we had a window. I wouldn't have, I would have, this never would have happened. But I looked down on a dark floor, and this is what I saw. That's how this thing began. I literally got in that miserable Volkswagen van, and I went straight to Baltimore. And that's how my, my search began. The one thing I had already learned in like two weeks of graduate school at Cooperstown was that things change, traditions change over time and place. And I, that rang in me, and I, I just had to go figure out what a Baltimore screen had to do with this screen that came from New York State, Fort Plain, New York, from about 1890. What do you think? That's the next question. Everybody wants to know, is Baltimore the only place where we have painted screens? And the answer is, in the 20th century, yes. Today, well, maybe not. But as a city, we are the only city that has embraced this phenomenon, this absolutely eclectic art form. Why? This is why. We live in very public space. We have no privacy. You know, our houses are chock-a-block right on top of the sidewalk. The row houses of Baltimore, from your front parlor, what you are literally on the street. And everything that happens, you know, is really a part of your, of your daily life. And so, the urge to own your own home. Baltimore was designed as a city of homeowners. Baltimore intentionally was never meant to be a New York or a Chicago. Baltimore was always going to be a place of single family homes. It was never going, to, intentionally never going to be a city of tenements. And so, to get the maximum use, obviously, of your land and make the most money, you build a row house. And East Baltimore was really kind of the place where the row house took off in the hands of two incredible builders, competitive builders, vying for the title of king of the row house, Frank Novak and Ed Edward Gallagher. So, furthermore, I couldn't get my, my machine <laughs> to, write, to write the words for some reason. I think, I think like Steve Jobs would stop me, you know, like one more thing. So these two 
you know, sort of the phenomenon of the Baltimore screen, which I went off to find, and um, the city that was just speaking to me. And in 1974, when I went off to find, to answer the questions and came to the Pratt Library, there had to be several hundred thousand screens on the homes of the city. You didn't just put it in your front window, you put them on every window, and you put them on your basement, and you put them in the back. Am I right? Am I is it sounding familiar to people? Um, and you didn't pay much money. All right, I guess I have to like, whoops. Oh, I'm supposed to remind you to buy the book. <laughs> Um, the photographs that I'm going to show you, share with you, are just an absolute sampling. And I just want to share a couple of the, I think the, the fact that you're here and that you care about Baltimore, I have to sort of, I have to disappoint you a little because I'm going to be talking about things that aren't Baltimore as well. But I have to, but I'm going to put us in a context that is so much greater than Baltimore. I actually had to go backwards, not just to that 1890s screen from Fort Plain, New York. I went way back. I went so deeply into the history of wire that I got to a point where I was writing a chapter and I was on page 50. And, some, and I sent the chapter to friends uh, to read and they said, I don't care about wire. <laughs> I don't care about wire. I just care about the screens and I care about what you know. So only you'll get a little bit about wire, but I think some of the amazing things are that you know wire is, goes back to antiquity. You know any great museum, um, certainly the Walters, um, is just filled with gold and silver wire and copper wire from jewelry. And this is a monk in 1430s in the 1430s in Nuremberg, Germany, believe it or not, who is pulling wire, drawing wire. Um, by swinging. He is sitting on a swing in Nuremberg. He is pulling the, the, met the wet metal, uh, base metal most likely, through smaller and smaller holes to make thin wire. So wire um, was ultimately made into other materials. It became incredibly um, you know, valuable, obviously, in industrial applications, which we're not going to talk about. But it started to be woven, woven wire cloth, and it was woven by hand. Can you imagine? And the earliest um, instance that I have found of a woven wire screen was in 1726 in London. And if you look, oh, remind me, the pointer. Here it is. This is a screen, despite what you may think. And if you read right here, John Brown in London made blinds for windows, windows curiously painted in canvas, silk, or wire. And the very wealthy would have this exact type of screen in their windows for privacy, but also as evidence of very conspicuous consumption. And yes, indeed, they were painted um, with various scenes, in this case, a floral scene. Throughout the 1800s, the 1700s, the 1800s, screens were used for privacy. 
They were used in banks. They were used in offices of all types where you needed privacy. And it might be that the screen was in an indoor office and you didn't want someone to see in, or it might have been placed on the outside. But as you can see, these would have been placed in a window. And this is before a form-fitting you know, screen um, you know, was, was created. And they were extremely decorative, as you can see. I, I've had actually a curator at the Walters when I uh, proposed an exhibition early on said, you know, that this shape is, is not, excuse me, whoops, is not for windows. This is for your fireplace. Obviously not. Um, in 1893, you could buy landscape painted screens in Baltimore. This is a full decade prior, two decades prior to Mr. Octavec's invention of painted screens, which we're getting to. I'm really laying the framework uh, for an art form, a decorative art that, that existed long before 1913 and long before a Czech uh, gentleman came into the scene. Whoops. Um, I just want you to see right here. You could go to 14 North Charles Street to Moeller and Hull, Pearlbert's, Hurlbut's Importers, and among the um, items you could buy would be the landscape painted screens. And people had them in the finest houses, and they had them in, uh, in seaside resorts, for example. This is a, um, um, a boarding house in Newcastle-by-the-Sea, uh, New Hampshire. And if you take a really good look, you will see that each of the windows, every single window, has a half screen, not dissimilar to the sliding screens that we would be using um, even today, with a, um, with a monochromatic scene. Well, until this time, the screens were really just you know, for, the, for the wealthy. Um, you could not, they, they, they were not affordable, um, and nobody really needed them because you may remember there was this sort of nasty era um, when malaria, yellow fever were just decimating you know, America's cities, a long period, but nobody knew why. And it was not until the early 1900s um, in, um, in uh, Cuba, in Havana, that we discovered that it was in fact a mosquito that Aegis aegypti Adis Egypti, who was responsible for the you know, you know, tens and tens and tens of thousands of deaths. And so it was at that point where people began to realize that if they screened their houses, um, they would be safe. They used to leave their houses, as you recall. People from the cities went to the country, they went to the mountains, they went to the seashore. But um, Adis Egypti, <laughs> Egypti went along with them. And so um, there became an interest in public health. And by the 1910s, uh, screens were available to everyone. They were very common. And so the wealthy, in fact, really wanted nothing to do with them. If you were going to mail order a painted screen, uh, a landscape painted screen, you might be told by 1910, mm -mm, they're not in style anymore. And that was because now everybody could have a screen. So think twice. So in 1913, William Octavec came to town. He came to Baltimore from a little village in Czechoslovakia. He came to New York. Um, and he worked, among other things, as a butcher when he came, because that's what he was trained as. But he actually uh, 
worked, wanted to be an artist. He was extremely talented, and he got a job, among other places, with the Eclipse Airbrush Company. And he was a demonstrator of spray technology, which was Eclipse's domain. He was introducing the sprayer. He would travel all over the country demonstrating painting wire and telephone wires and wicker and you name the material, and that's what he was doing. Well, guess what? He figured it out. He knew what paint on wire meant. And so when he bought his grocery store right here on the left, on the corner of Ashland and North Collington Avenues in northeast Baltimore, in the shadow of St. Wenceslas Church, was, was the hub, the, the, you know, the absolute beating heart of the Czech community um, in 1913 when he came here. It opened to the public. Um, it was finished in 1914. And most of these black and white photographs I'm showing you are by a Czech gentleman named John Dubosch, who uh, was an incredible photographer who lived on uh, North Bradford Street, just a few blocks away, and chronicled the heck out of uh, Northeast Baltimore. Uh, and the collection is now at the Maryland Historical Society. It uh, was originally at the Peel Museum, or the uh, Baltimore City Life Museums. So. Um, when Octavet came to town, this is the Bromley map in Atlas in 1906, you can see that here's Hopkins right here, and there weren't nothing here. Uh, nobody, the, the, the plats were laid out, but the houses were not built. And what do we have here but the brickyards, the Baltimore brickyards? And um, actually, Wayne Schomburg is here, and I want to thank him for a lot of his help um, in finding helping me get the right maps. And I know that Eva Slezak is here, who is my, my go-to person for the Czech community. Thank you from the bottom of my heart to both of you. Um, but what would happen is when Gallagher and Novak came into this neighborhood and started buying up property to build row houses, like everything you see in pink, um, they actually would build right on the edges of the brickyards. And they would literally fit, complete a, a brickyard, you know, it's an extractive industry, take all the brick out, build the houses, and then move to another brickyard or build, you know, start, develop another brickyard further on. There was actually a, a point in time when Frank Novak owned all the brickyards in town. I mean, he just bought them up. He was, he'd, he'd figured that out early. So owning a home um, and uh, living in a row house is really why painted screens caught up. Everybody was able to own their own home for a mere $750 if you lived on an alley street. And um, obviously, I'll always recommend Mary Ellen Hayward's book, um, uh, an incredible book about um, that features the Bohemian neighborhood. But one of the beauties of our neighborhoods, of our row house neighborhoods, is we don't want to be different. Um, you know, for the most part, row house living is about building harmony. Um, everybody who lives in a row house knows that if you have trouble with your neighbor, you, this life is not good. And so the, row ha the, um, the painted screens, for example, are just one of those amenities that sort of brought sort of calming and brought sameness to the neighborhood. So that it was just like this block of South Decker Avenue just near Patterson Park, um, you can see that every single screen is identical. And why is it? It was because, you know, Mrs. Jablonski says to her neighbor, 
you know, um, you know, who painted your screen, they give them the name, they look for the guy, you get the same screen. Or the itinerant artist would come to you, come to your uh, street, and it would be bring out your screens and everybody would just get every screen on their house painted. And so, you know, even now, with the changing demographics in East Baltimore, um, you know, the, when I started my research in the 70s, you know, the, av the, the average age of, um, well, it was 70-some percent female over the age of 75. Um, it was an, and, and we were all hyphenated Americans. It was all, it was German, Ukrainian, Polish, uh, Czechoslovakian, it was an incredibly integrated place. You know, where did you differ on which church you went to? But you lived close to your church. So bottom line is, don't rock the boat, get the red bungalow. Um, the first screen ever painted by Mr. Octavec allegedly was one that he painted in New York uh, or in New Jersey at uh, Western Electric after he worked for Eclipse. He sprayed telephone wires for Western Electric. That was his job. And he had a, there was a secretary who was a little annoyed by the um, um, the guys hanging out in front of her window. He says, I'll take care of it, and he paints a screen for her. He moves to Baltimore just a few years later, and he paints a screen for the front door of his um, uh, of his grocery store. And allegedly, he just did, you know, the story is that he, you know, tired of the wilting produce all over his, you know, on the sidewalk, painted their picture, his neighbors were satisfied, they thought it was the real thing. They also happened to notice when they stood outside, they could not see in. When they stood inside, they could see straight out. Emma Schott, long known as Mrs. John Schott, um, uh, noticed and said, I think this would work to keep my husband from complaining about the bums rubbernecking on the street right, out, right next door. And so she gave him a picture. And part of the fun of this hunt, and um, by the way, this is, um, this is year 39 of my you know, adventures in, with painted screens. Uh, and every, I, there's something new all the time to discover. So it's kind of the nature of research that can be ongoing. And in a vital city like this, it never stops. Uh, the, just this, this year, I was in um, a shop and that used to be an Octavec shop. And I saw this very image on a distant safe, the door of a, a safe behind plexiglass in a pawn shop. And I asked if that could possibly be original to the store, which would mean it was an original Octavec safe. And they took the picture for me. Um, I've yet to have a professional be able to go in because <laughs> it's a very high security spot. And I truly believe that this is the red mill picture that Mrs. Schott gave Mr. Octavec to paint for her house because um, it was there on his safe. And it, there's just no sense, no other explanation. Um, the red bungalow became synonymous. Why? If you look around, Red bungalows are everywhere, red-roofed cottages. I mean, they're in popular culture. They've been on calendars. They've been in, um, uh, on greeting cards. They are in your train garden. They are, they're ubiquitous. It's a ubiquitous and a timeless form. And they come, they, they're very popular abroad. They're very popular here. Um, everyone wanted the red bungalow. That was part of the don't rock the boat. And over time, 
you know, everyone just said, I want one, I want one, I want one. This is an original from um, on the very street where Mr. Octavec lived, the 800 block of North Collington. And I invite you guys to go back sometime soon. So what happened? Mr. Octavec starts painting. Well, of course, it's public domain and anybody can have at it. And I know that this is like hard on the eyes, but how do I show you how many people just saw the screens and said, I could be a screen painter. I can do that. And they were amateurs. They were kind of local smokehounds. Anybody know the word smoky, smokehound? Anybody know that word? <laughs> Smokies were the guys uh, during Prohibition who, uh, for lack of a drink, poured all these chemicals together to find something alcoholic. And they didn't live long, but um, <laughs> but... Some of them were among the most talented artists um, that Baltimore had. And so here we have William Octavec, who started it all in 1913, who, um, in a sense, begat every single screen painter in Baltimore. But at the very same time that he was painting, this is what I'm taking you a little backwards but, and, but forwards. In 1974, when I started my research, this screen in the center was hanging on Chester Street, South Chester Street um, in Fells Point. And it was always my enigma, this, this what is the screen doing here? Well, it is a leftover of that period between the um, 19, uh, 1850s in Vermont and the 1860s in New York State. It is the same type of romantic pastoral images that was everywhere in the 19th century, but somehow this screen survived. Um, and I just wanted to remind you that at the same time, people were painting on wire, on masks as disguises, um, in a, a lot of the fraternal orders. And so the same exact... Um, um, benefit. You see out, no one sees you, no one sees in. So the 19th century kind of melded into the 20th century when Mr. Octavet came along. And so what, when he painted his first screen in 1913, he, he took on a few, his own family, the Octavec chain, but he also took on um, apprentices, a young woman named Ruth Creesom who lived on Montford Avenue a few blocks south and Johnny Eck, who lived directly around the, the corner from the art shop, which I'll be introducing you to. But every one of these painters up until today literally had some connection somehow. And this entire group um, in, the, in the 20s and the 30s and the 40s and the 50s all went directly to visit an Octavec to learn his or her trade. In 1922, they started going to the art shop. Octavec became so successful with his screens and um, in a career in art, he used talents as a draftsman in various jobs, and ultimately he fulfilled his dream of opening the art shop in, in, um, on East Monument Street, which was literally, I mean, everybody knew the art shop. And I mean, as someone says, art shop, you've just got to go just to see what's in there. And it was where the family had their business, um, oh, repairing statuary, uh, also doing church restoration, selling greeting cards, 
with red bungalow pictures on them, selling the calendars with all those romantic images, and um, any kind of art, stained glass, uh, anything that you would be needed, um, engrossing documents, embellishing cards. They were literally, Johns Hopkins uh, uh, doctors were, were going to Hopkins on a regular basis to get their diplomas and all of their greeting cards and everything that they wanted um, to have uh, calligraphy added to right here on 2409 East Monument Street. The uh, generations of Octavex that carried on literally went from Mr. Octavec William to his son Richard, to his son Albert, to his son John, who is painting, to Richard's son John, who is painting today, so the third generation. But each of these artists uh, literally became his own master, became his own expert, taught themselves. They all made pilgrimages to the art shop fruitless. They never learned a thing. So they all taught themselves. And they said, I'm not going to be as stingy with the information. And so each one of them would create their own how-tos, which we'll actually share with you as part of the exhibition that will be opening next Friday at the Maryland Institute College of Art. I want to share with you one of Richard Octavex, the, the son of William, the youngest son, who when William died in 1956, immediately saw the unfinished canvas on his easel, on, uh, and, I'm sorry, unfinished screen on his easel, and said, I'll take care of it. And so Richard, until his death in 1979, was the Octavec painter and the screen painter of record, while all the others were are still coming online. And this is one of the great screens that Richard painted, and it's one of the great Baltimore stories. Does anybody recognize this photo, this image? It is Park Avenue. It's the 800 block of Park Avenue. Anybody know who lived on the 800, what photographer might have lived on the 800 block? Aubrey Bodine lived in this house right over here, and um, across from the church, 806, I believe, um, and he gave, he sent, he gave Richard Octavec two of his favorite images of Mount Vernon to paint on a screen. And he had them on his screen the entire time they lived there. They sold the house, they, they sold the house with the screens on them, actually to one of the handlers. Um, but they vanished. The screens are nowhere to be found. Uh, Pat Moran lives in the house now. The screens are nowhere to be found. But what I especially love about this image is right here, I've added this in. Um, that's Jennifer Bodine, who carries on the legacy of her father, as many of you know in his, in the, in his books. And he said to Jennifer when she was in high school, go outside, walk by, let me take a picture so that people can see that you can see out, but you can't see in. And so this is one of the great Bodine photographs that you'll never see that was given to me uh, to copy by Nancy Bodine, uh, his wife. Uh, Bodine's wife. So um, coming full circle, painted screens have always had an ebb and flow, and I think everyone in this room has at one point say, oh, they used to be, they died, they're gone, they're back. And they do come back, and they've always come back. There has always been a period when they have disappeared and when they have come back. And when did they die? You know, they, died, they die when an artist dies sometimes, or they think, people think that there's nobody left to paint in their neighborhood, because each of these painters had his, has his or her turf. Um, they died when air conditioners came in in the 60s. Everybody said, oh, done. Nobody's going to ever open a window again. They're back. They came back in the 80s. Um, and artists who said, I'm done, came back. 
So we are now in the new millennium, and there are many new painters coming online. And I think what's so exciting is this is no longer your grandmother's painted screen. If you want a red bungalow, you can have one, but you can have anything you want. Um, and I think you'll see some pretty amazing, not only iconography, but you're going to see some forms that are going to blow your mind when you come to the show. And I just really want to... Um, remind you that in 1985 we started the Painted Screen Society originally as a guild for the screen painters. It was just us because when I started my research and went visiting, I knew everybody. You know, by 1979, I'd sit on the stoop with Johnny Eck, I'd hang out with Ben Richardson, Dee Hergett and I were, you know, we'd go thrift store shopping together. I knew every painter. I knew their palette. I knew their, you know, their, their um, idiosyncrasies. They didn't know each other. None had ever met another. And so we started meeting in my South Elwood Avenue Canton Row House, and we just had a ball and, and, and decided that we would start a, an organization. The screen painters decided that. And what became clear, like immediately, and this was 1985, was that everybody wanted to be a member. And so it became a membership organization. And it's through the Painted Screen Society and probably some of the, the video that we did in 1997, How to Paint a Screen, that so many new people like Anna Pasqualucci and like John Yampieri and like Monica Brewer and Jennifer Campbell came online and started painting, came to our workshops, saw videos, literally became screen painters. So, you know, we're, we're kind of proud to be, we don't feel like we tinkered because we, we, always, we still teach people through the red bungalow. Um, but I think one of the things that we're going to have to become more aware of is that painted screens in the new millennium are everywhere. And they're right around the corner. This is the former Rochambeau site, which many of us are still <laughs> sad about its loss. But what we got was one of Baltimore's largest painted screens. This scrim in the, in the uh, uh, Pope John Paul prayer garden um, covers the garage. And during the day, you can't see in. But if you're on the other side, you can see out. And at night, when the lights are on inside, you don't know it's there. So keep your eyes peeled. Watch the buses wrapped in painted screens in new digital technology. Uh, look at the buildings um, with construction mesh on them with messages to you. That's the same technology gone digital. So bottom line is they are everywhere. And I no longer need or want to be the only person who knows that. There is nothing unknown about painted screens that is not in this book. And it is my joy and my gift to all of you who made it possible to write this book. So buy that book. And thank you. Now, what do you want to know? Now, I, do we really have to go up to the microphone, Ryan? All right, well, if you're not loud. I mean, if you're loud, we're gonna, we might make you go to the microphone. Like the, the one that you showed that you said was a uh, 
sort of an in-between the, the New York. Are you aware that was painting? Do you have any nothing. No, absolutely nothing. But you're going to see some screens in the exhibition at the Maryland Institute and in the book. Oh, right, in the book. I'm sorry, in the book. Um, that have some similarities. <laughs> so we don't know. Um, and that's the beauty of you know long research is that I found many screens by identified artists from the 19th century. And in fact, um, there were the wire companies had screen painters on their payroll. So artists, as a, you know, artists paint. They don't care what they paint on it's today, ever, right? We're painting on walls. We're painting on anything. Um, and so screen was there, and it was like canvas. So people, uh, so the, so these artists would say, I'll, I'll take the job. I'll be your screen painter. But the one, it's it's it looks like it's been repainted. Um, and it's, you'll see it in the show. I'm very excited. Um, so, I mean, I'm, I'm also very lucky because I was doing my research in an era when um, the neighbors were, the neighborhoods were very stable. They couldn't, the, the neighborhoods from 1974 until really about 1976 just stuck. Nothing changed. And then, whoa, you know, I forgot to do my research in dumpsters at a certain point in time, and that's where a huge number of painted screens ended up because the new people coming in didn't really appreciate the, this painted screen, sadly, and I'm sure they'll be very sorry soon. Madam, do you have a question, or are you making us go home? No. no. <laughs> okay. Are we being recorded? Uh, hold on. I'm afraid I must. Is, is it portable? Or? Do you mind getting up or do oh, you? No, no, no. Okay. Yeah, you know what? You need some exercise. So if you can if you can get <laughs> We all do. I mean, we all do. I need exercise. Was there ever a cultural or an ethic uh, meaning to any of these? Or did the Italians have some things that were different than maybe the Polish or and did the the blacks or whatever the politically correct word would be to use was it in the black communities as well? At that time, or was let that me take the, there are two ahead. separate questions. Um, it is an ethnic art. It started as an ethnic art. It started as a Czech art. Um, you know, it started as um, you know, Mr. Oktovec was Czechoslovakian. Therefore, people there actually there were people who said to me, "Why would I care about a Czech art?" You know, it's like mm -mm, not a Czech art anymore. Um, it what happened is, you know, the, the communities were all ethnically based. Where that church, where the church was, meant that community lived there. And so, you know, you have your the Italian, you know, I mean, Highland Town has Pompeii. It's got Saint Saint Bridget's. We've got a Sacred Heart of Jesus. You know, German community, Saint Elizabeth, German. And so each of these areas had their own screen painter, literally. Um, and in Little Italy, the only guy who took it up was a guy named Frank Cipollone. Um, I don't know why Tony DeSales never took up screens, you know, it's kind of funny. Um, but so he loved painting local sites or whatever people wanted. So it might be more common in Little Italy. But there were incredible screens of um, the town squares um, of of the capitals of all the Eastern European cities, or the great Polish, you know, the, um, cathedrals in, um, you know, in Prague, or, or you name it. I mean, there were just 
they loved their postcards, <laughs> and they loved their screens, and they loved their landmarks from home. But everybody wants to think that the red bungalow came from the old country. It didn't. It came from the same greeting cards that we can pick up today in any you know, Hallmark card store. So, but I do have to tell you, when I went through the Octavec family album in the 70s, and I saw the house that Mr. Octavec grew up in, guess what it is? You know, a thatched roof bungalow, you know, looks just like all of these, but absolutely, he denied, by the way, that he, that he it was based on any, you know, yearning for the homeland. Now, in terms of the African-American communities, um, we have never had, let me, unless, wait, we'll let, let me, do you have an answer? <coughs> yeah, that's, nice. they were paying the screens, I wish I could find one. Boy, would I, I never saw any painted screens. Any, I didn't do a lot of research in the Afro-American, I have to admit that. Um, but we are now um, actually, the corner of Ashland and Collington is the dead center of the EBDI um, project at Hopkins, the, you know, the biotech community that has become other things. And um, we actually celebrate the 100th anniversary of painted screens this fall. We put a landmark plaque up on Mr. Octavec's store that is going to be converted back to a store. And there are now 33 um, painted screens on that block, all African American except with one exception. And I will tell you that we have painted the red mill on the original house where the original red mill um, screen was painted. So, and we're in the process of um, a mitigation possibly with this EBDI project uh, for new homes that are being built in the, I think they're, what are they calling it, Eager Park or Chase Park? There's a new name for the neighborhood, I believe. They're trying to get rid of that. Middle East, formerly Little Bohemia name, and um, we are hoping that they will actually put screens on the houses in this traditionally African-American community and that we will be able to, they will underwrite, uh, the, the, the federal government will underwrite workshops in the schools and for the adults to teach peanut screens and to bring it back into that community. So thank you for those questions. Yes, sir. It's interesting that you studied in Cooperstown the lake which is the origin of Tell me. the Susquehanna which feeds the Chesapeake Bay. It was not lost on me. And when I, I, will, I will tell you, yes, the um, Lake Otsego, this beautiful, beautiful glacial lake, is the um, source of the Chesapeake Bay. And it winds its way through the Delaware River and down or Delaware River Valley to um, Baltimore or to Haver Haverty Grace to the Susquehanna, and I will tell you that I go there and I sit at the at, at the you know the, the junction of the rivers, and it just makes me weep. It's it to me. It's I guess there's there, there's certain destiny in what we do in our lives, and maybe that's part of it. And I would tell you all, if you ever want to have an amazing experience, go to Cooperstown when the ice begins to break and the ice comes down the lake to a little falls and it just you know gathers up and cracks and breaks and sends over the falls and if you hit it at the exact right time and you never know when it's going to be um it's a pretty remarkable you know um place to be
It's all, Lake Otsego is always a remarkable place to be. All right, Miss Judy wants you to use the mic, so I apologize. I'm being a bad hostess. Host. Did religious imagery find its way on the screens. Uh, great question, Gary. Religious imagery found its way onto some of the screens, but it was verboten. It was not appreciated, particularly in these very ethnic, you know, uh, religious observant communities. And um, Ben Richardson tells a story at, um, that he painted Christ for a client. He had, he had many, you know, very um, devoted, devout um, customers. And um, he painted Christ, and the woman calls the next day and says, what would you do to my screen? And he says, whoa, customer service, he's all about it. He's right down there. He looks at, goes to the door, and someone has cut it out. It is gone. It was a door, a door screen with Jesus Christ in prayer. And he finds a note on the bottom. He says, Jesus Christ does not belong on the door. So we actually are going to have an X-rated room in the exhibit, and guess who's there? I, I, one of my favorites was always a screen, um, I think around Bradford, um, Bradford Street in Northeast, and it was a Jesus Christ, which is going to be in the show actually also, um, and is in the book, and you could see the Sloman Shield, you know, the security system, like right, like right here on Jesus, and I just always loved that because it was like I got double security, and that one stayed. You know, that one stayed. So, yes, yeah, so religious imagery. But check this out. When we asked the residents of Collington at North Collington at this recent um, centennial observation what they would like to have on their screens, um, and by the way, the State Arts Council and the Maryland Humanities Council funded this project to kind of bring um, screens and also the sort of the, the context back to the community, um, they... The, all the neighbors are asking for religious pictures. And I'm like, enough already. But the truth is, wait, you've got to go see them because they're incredible. There's a Last Supper. There's this Jesus, you know, with his rays. And she knew they brought us exactly the pictures they wanted. And it's directly across from one of um, Sister Teresa's convents is directly across the street. You know, they're in silent prayer all the time. So it's kind of, in a, you know, kind of out of respect to them in large part. But St. Wenceslas Church is what keeps this neighborhood very, you know, secure. In fact, if not for St. Wenceslas, I wouldn't be surprised if among the 88 acres that went down, we would have lost the 800 block of North Collington. So you must come visit. Um, I'll take you on a tour. Other questions? Well, I thank you all. These were great questions. And What you really need to know is I did not tell you everything. And I have to say I'm incredibly proud of myself because I never once said, it's, it says in the book. <laughs> so thank you all. Please buy the book. Um, the, C the DVDs um, are on sale here too, separately. Um, we re-released um, both of our DVDs, the how-to and the screen painter's film, and we added new footage um, of John Waters' interview, which did not make it in, in the original DVD. And when you see, when you see it, you'll know why. <laughs> So thank you all, and um, we'll see you at the Maryland Institute College of Art beginning next Friday at uh, 5 o'clock when the uh, show opens, and it will be open uh, and on through 
March 16th, 2014. There's a list of some of the um, events that are going to be happening and programs. We'll be having a Bring Out Your Screens event for evaluation, kind of an antiques roadshow for painted screens that I'll be happy to identify anybody's screens or help you with conservation issues, et cetera, et cetera. But check it out. We'll be showing the film. We'll be showing little castles. And we'll be bringing the screen painters all together on Sunday, September uh, December 15th at 3 o'clock uh, to talk about their, their lives as screen painters. So thank you all so much for being here.